The self-help industry is estimated to make, hear this, $11 billion in the U.S. this year alone. $11 billion from conferences to life coaches to best-selling books. People are trying to organize, diet, produce, and center themselves so that they can live their best life now. And what's more is the self-help industry has a high revolving door. What that means is that the people who frequent the conferences and buy the books and jam out to Tony Robbins, they do so over and over and over. On average, every 18 months, they're gonna go back to the self-help well. Now that begs the question, are these self-help gurus actually doing anything to help the people solve their problems, that they have to keep coming back. If they're so effective at solving our problems, why do so many people have to go back to buy the latest rendition of Seven Habits to be a highly successful person? And if you look at the material, even just a quick cursory glance at the material shows that all they really offer are sweeping generalizations, these magic bullets, these magic number of steps. If you do this, apply this, then your life change. It's oversimplification. They overpromise and always underdeliver. And this gap between our expectation and reality is called disappointment. The good news this morning is that God offers a better hope, a real hope towards true change that lasts. So let me ask you as we begin this morning, do you feel stuck in your walk with Christ? Has all the delight been taken out of the duty? Do you feel defeated? Does it feel like you try and you try and you try, but you seem to get tripped up on the same cycles of sin? Have you ever wondered, can I even change? Is it really even possible? So family, this morning, I am not offering a panacea or some kind of cure-all. The Bible does not peddle in pat answers oversimplifications, all too simple formulas for walking with Christ. People are not math problems to be figured out. It doesn't work that way. In fact, the Bible talks about multiple ways that he works to change and transform us into the image of Christ. This process of changing us to look more like Jesus is what the Bible calls sanctification. And we're gonna be looking at this over the next four weeks in our 4G series. The Bible will talk about how God uses truth to change you. God also uses sufferings and struggles to form and shape us. We were talking about that this morning, weren't we, Lisa? God uses people often, the right word, a wise word, community to sharpen us. God also, at times, goes straight to the heart, works directly in us to bring about the change. And I could go on. There's all kinds of ways that the Bible speaks about this process of sanctification. And in different seasons of your life, one of these methods that God uses might take lead in bringing about the work of sanctification in your life. But in this series today, we're going to talk about one of those ways that God works to change us. You see, truth about who God is when when we really focus on it, we'll work deep down into the core of who we are and it's going to challenge deep-seated unbelief. And when that unbelief is rooted out, the result is change. 
So there's this pattern in Scripture that who God is directly informs what God does. And then we ask, well, now who am I in light of God's work? And then finally we ask, how should I live in light of who I am? These four questions, who is God? What has he done? Who am I in light of that? And how do I live? They help us apply these eternal truths about God into the everyday stuff of life. Now hear me, these are not four steps to your best life. I am not offering you a quick and easy solution. Rather, these questions are meant to give you tools in order to do the diagnostic work of the heart, to see where we're not rightly believing about God. See, Tim, Tim Chester says it well. He says, behind every sin is a lie. The root of all of our behaviors and motions is the heart. What we truly trust, what we truly treasure works its way out. Whatever our roots are in, that's the fruit that comes out. Healthy roots produce healthy fruit. It's not complicated, but it's also not easy because false gods are stubborn and our lies live in the nooks and crannies of our heart. But the difficult and seemingly impossible is where God shines, right? What seems daunting to us, what seems impossible That's where God really thrives. He's able to get down into the core of our heart and bring about that change. And the hope of the gospel this morning is that we can change because God is faithful to finish the work that he has started in us. So let's kick off our series with the first G, that God is great. So over the next four weeks, all of our anchor texts are gonna be in the book of Colossians. So just some quick background on the letter, because this is kind of a new study for us. We've been in the book of Mark. We want to understand where Paul is coming from as he writes this letter. It's written about three decades after the resurrection of Jesus. So this is somewhere in 60 AD. Though Paul was, he, and, and, uh, the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this letter. Though Paul himself was a prolific church planter, what we know from history is that Paul didn't actually plant and start this church. A Colossian named Epaphras traveled to Ephesus, and while he was there, he heard Paul preach the gospel. And when he heard the good news, he responded with faith and repentance, and then he committed his life to knowing, loving, and following Jesus. He left Ephesus, went to Colossae, and told his friends and his family, his neighbors and networks about Jesus. And it was through his testimony that this church was birthed. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae to encourage this new young church. Think about how Paul would have felt to know that that God was taking his preaching and his church planning work and doing abundantly more with it than he could even ask or imagine. And he wrote this letter while he was actually in prison. He knew that their theology and their knowledge of faith was immature and unformed. They were fervent. They were faithful. They were on fire for God, but they needed to be formed and shaped and rooted in the gospel. When I look at that situation, I go, isn't that similar to our church? We're young, we're new, we're fervent, we're faithful, and yet we need to be formed and shaped in the gospel as we dive into the life and mission of God's church. There's so much packed into these first verses. You heard them read. It's like drinking theology from a fire hydrant. 
But as I unpack them, I want you to be thinking about how they speak about God's greatness, both in who he is and what he's done. Now, when we speak about something being great, what do we mean? Because we kind of talk about that word. We, we throw it around, right? We talk about how uh, our sports heroes are great. At the top of the list, you've got Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Babe Ruth, Tom Brady. No doubt, people might debate on who the GOAT is of any given sport, but nobody debates that the guys I just listed are in the running, right? They're some of the greatest in their field of all time. We'll talk about food in terms of greatness. We'll debate on who has the best clam chowder or the best lobster roll. Where I'm from, people talk about who has the best tacos. <laughs> My wife, Andy, and I have been watching a show on Netflix called The World's Most Extraordinary Homes. When you watch this show, you see the most amazing landscapes, amazing architecture. They're building, like one of them is building a house out of an airplane wing. Unbelievable, millions spent. They really are extraordinary homes. There's something great about them. We talk about greatness in terms of people and things that have risen to the top of their class. In their specific domain, they outshine everything else. But when we talk about God being great, we're not merely talking about greatness in one limited domain. We're talking about a kind of greatness that surpasses everything. Great, as applied to God, is to talk about his preeminence. You heard that word come up in the text that Mandy read. Preeminence speaks about a surpassing worth and a greatness above all others. It's a kind of superiority. In fact, when I was looking at this text, I saw that word preeminence, and I thought, nobody uses that word anymore. So I Googled it. And you know, the only entries that showed up were dictionary entries. That's it. Not just on the first page, on the second page, on the third page. And I thought, man, isn't that profound? As an adjective, it isn't being applied to anyone or anything anymore. And it's not just a, a linguistic profundity, but there's also a theological uh, profundity as well because we're not talking about the preeminence of God anymore. Nobody's writing about how our God is preeminent, that there's a surpassing worth and greatness to him. The reality is, the greatness of God is all over the Bible. You really can't open it. You could close your eyes and open up to a page and you're gonna see the writer talking about the greatness of our God. We could spend hours just going through line by line. But today, for the sake of time, I'll just share one with you. Psalm 145, verse three. We'll have the words on the screen. The psalmist says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. The psalmist says his greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. It's indescribable. It's incomprehensible. It's higher, deeper, longer, wider than any search that we could comprehend. The only way that we can even speak about it is to use a catch-all word and say, God, you're great. When we're talking about this great God, we're talking about the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-good, everywhere, all the time. Let me say it another way. There isn't a category that he doesn't own. He is at the top of every one. He's sovereign. He's all wise. He's in control. And he alone is perfect. 
God has the right, the wisdom, the power, the goodness to do all that he pleases. And everything he does is good and great. That is a greatness that surpasses understanding. This morning, we're focusing on this passage in Colossians because it applies that greatness to Jesus Christ. It's laser-focused on Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man. And that point will be made loud and clear in this passage. So with that said, let's dive in, and we're going to quickly go phrase by phrase and unpack all this greatness. And as we do, you're going to see this back and forth between who God is and what he does. Who he is and what he does. I'm going to read uh, verses 15 through 20. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he Jesus might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is a, that is a beautiful statement about Jesus. It has a rhythm to it. There's a cadence to it. In fact, lots of commentators think this is one of the earliest hymns in the early church about Jesus. Christ is preeminent. He is in control. When you read this, you hear, man, he is supreme and he's great. It begins like this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Here's what this means. It means that the nature and being of God himself has been perfectly revealed in Jesus. What has been invisible to us for so long, now in the person of Jesus is made visible. That's, in fact, what we celebrate at Christmas. We're talking about the reality that God has come to earth to be God with us. What's amazing about Jesus is this. Not only does he reveal what divinity means, he shows us the fullness of God, but he also reveals what true humanity looks like. In Christ, we see both the fullness of God and our own human trajectory. He's the perfect image of the divine, and he's the perfect representative of humanity. Paul also says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this doesn't mean that he is a created thing, like the best of all creation. That's not what he's talking about. We're going to find out in just a couple verses that he's the one who's actually the primary active agent in creation. But in this culture, to talk about the firstborn was really to speak about the one who is the heir, the one who receives everything from the father. See, the firstborn son in Jewish culture was always the heir to the father. And there's coming a day when Christ will inherit all things before a watching world. And brothers and sisters, this is the inheritance that Peter says is unfading, imperishable, kept in heaven for you. And it pleases Christ to share that inheritance with us. Now think about Paul. He's writing this while he's chained up, right? Think about the encouragement this would be to those who are suffering 
precisely because no matter what our current situation is, there's coming a day when we will share in the inheritance of Christ. Then we find out that all things were created by him. Not some things. The Bible says all things were created through him. And just in case you didn't catch the all, Paul goes on to define it. He says Jesus created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things. Authority structures, governments, powers, rulers of the spiritual world. There is not anything you will come into contact with, visible or invisible, that has not been created by him. Not only were they created by him and through him, but they were also created for him. See, in creation, every person of our triune God is at work. See, God the Father is the one who plans. He's like that great architect laying out the blueprint for all of creation. Jesus is like the general contractor who's executing that plan. He's the active agent making sure that the Father's plan unfolds. And the spirit of the living God is like the subcontractors actually bringing the order, actually applying that plan in place to see the fabric of creation actually created. The father plans, the son executes, and the spirit applies. All of creation is said to be done through Christ, and it also is for him. Everything in creation owes its existence to Jesus. He's the true origin. In fact, this passage says he is right now sustaining it. He is holding it all together. When I think about Easter weekend and what we've just celebrated, that while the son of the living God was on the cross, he was holding the very structures and the fibers of the wood of the cross together. Isn't that amazing? He was keeping together the soldiers that held him there. He's holding everything together right now. Without him, nothing would have ultimate meaning. Jesus is the great creator who creates everything we see. But he goes on, he says, not only is he the creator, but he's also the head of the church. The emphasis here is that the church local and the church universal depend on Christ for their life. Think about it this way. If a body doesn't hold fast to its head, what hope does it have for survival? That's precisely Paul's point. He's saying Christ is the head. He supplies life to the church, and he's exercising control and direction. His body, the limbs, the organs, all of it are under his control. And they're to obey his direction and perform his work. And he goes on to say that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus goes before us as the first one to be raised from the dead. That's what we're celebrating at Easter, right? That Jesus didn't stay dead. He came out of the tomb as a first fruit of our future resurrection. See, because he's the first to be raised, the implication is this. There's gonna be many more to follow. Everyone who is joined to Jesus will experience a resurrection like his that is actually the hope of the Christian life. That's why we can look at death in the face and say, oh death, where is your victory? The slayer has merely become a gardener. What is sown as perishable is raised imperishable. Paul also says that the fullness of God dwells in Christ bodily. 
What this means is that the fullness of all God's divine attributes and characters are found in Christ. See, Jesus is not merely some animated, unique, empowered person who's just really in tune with God. No, no, no. Jesus is actually God wrapped in flesh. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus. The historic confession of the church is that the totality of God's divine essence is resident in Christ. See, God did not expect man to come to God. That would have been impossible. And every other religion is merely a fool's errand instructing people on how they can build and climb a ladder to God. But there's no way anyone could ever do that. In Christ, God has come to man. He bridged the gap we could never cross. That's why the final line of this section says that Jesus reconciled to himself all things, and he did so by making peace through his blood. Now, when Paul says that Christ has reconciled all things to himself, it implies that strife and disharmony abound and need to be reconciled, doesn't it? That there's been a rupture in the foundation of creation. And most notably, we feel it in the relationship between God and man. That everyone feels some kind of disconnectedness. Everyone walks around believing that something isn't right. There's nobody you've ever met that believes that this is the way it's supposed to be. As a result, the entire created order has been disordered and broken. And Paul is praising Christ because he's not a God who says, look, I made it, you broke it, now figure it out, right? He's the creator, but he's also the recreator. He's the one who seeks after us. We're reconciled to God because he makes the move to us. See, the Bible is not some story about man's search for God. Rather, from the first sentence to the last, the Bible is a story about God's initiative to dwell among us. God takes the initiative to create us, to reconcile us, and to restore all things to himself. Now hear me, that does not mean that everyone will be saved. Some people have tried to take this passage and say that that means that there's universal salvation. That's not what Paul is saying. But it is saying that all of those who are ultimately reconciled to God will be saved because of Christ's blood. And as uncomfortable as that may make us, the price of our redemption was nothing short than his blood. It had to be. People don't like hearing that Jesus had to die for our sins, but there was no other way. It took the death of Christ to pay for our debt and to secure our freedom. And not only is Jesus our great creator, but he is our great savior. And so in this passage, we see both of his, the greatness as creator and the greatness as our redeemer through the blood. He alone is able to save and redeem. And so when we think about Christ, who is he? One of the things we can say about him is he is creator. And the other thing we can say is he is our redeemer. Everything was created in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. That speaks of greatness. That's control. That's sovereignty. And this truly great one was willing to lay down his life so that he could also become our great redeemer. There's no one like him. Now, I told you these first few verses were jam-packed with theology. 
I just gave you like a whole four years worth of theology in about 10 minutes there. And even though it feels like we're drinking theology from a fire hydrant, that's the point. We should see God is great and he does great things. He's our great creator and our perfect redeemer. Now we know who God is and what he's done. That's the truth. That's the eternal truth about God. Who are we in light of that? Look at verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So before Paul talks about who we are in Christ through the work of his reconciliation, he wants us, he wants to remind us, unless we forgot, who we were apart from Christ. Paul describes us as alienated. We were outcasts, unsafe, on our own to fend for ourselves. When I think about that word alienated, I think about what it would look like to be homeless. Right? Think about it. When you're homeless, you bear the elements. You bear the blistering cold in the winter. You endure the draining heat of the summer. To survive, you're living off scraps. You're scavenging. You're looking for free meals any place you can get them. And at the end of the night, you go to sleep with one eye open. You're exposed. You're out in the open. All you have easily taken by the next person looking to survive. Paul's saying that's who we were apart from Christ. We were alienated. But not only that, we were hostile in mind. This means we were marked by a mentality that is antagonistic to the truth about God. R.C. Lucas said it this way, antagonistic, please note, not merely apathetic. We deceive ourselves if we imagine that human apathy is the problem and not a deep down enmity that resists the claims of God. It's not merely that we're disinterested. We stiff arm God and we want nothing to do with him. And apart from Christ, we also participated in evil deeds. Now this is another wildly unpopular statement, but deep down at our, car, at our core, we are not good at heart. That doesn't mean that people aren't capable of any good. That's not what I'm saying. But what it does mean is we have a serious problem. We don't need just minor, mere improvement. We don't need a quick little makeover in order to be received by God. We all have evil hearts, and from those hearts, we produce evil deeds. You see it in every human culture, across time and geography, and when we're honest with ourselves, we see it when we look in the mirror. Apart from Christ, we're alienated, hostile in mind, and we're doing evil deeds. But now listen to how Paul describes us fully reconciled in Christ. It's beautiful. He has reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. We're reconciled. We who were far are now brought near. We who were homeless were given a home. We who are estranged have been brought into a family where we are cherished and loved. We're holy and blameless. And now, because of Christ, we receive a good reputation. 
In short, we are accepted and loved, secured and safe in Christ. God is in control, and he provides everything we need. And you may say, well, Clint, I don't feel like those words. When I hear you say, holy, blameless, and above reproach, I don't feel like that. You know what? Neither do I. But in Christ, we are. So when I don't feel like that, I rest my soul in the truth that that's what Christ says about me. See, everything that is true of Christ is now true of you. See, when you're joined to him, you participate in his holiness, in his blamelessness, and now your name is attached to his reputation. So we have to live in that tension of the already and not yet, right? Right now, we are at the same time holy, yet we still sin. We're blameless before God, yet we know that there's some guilt. We're above reproach with this amazing reputation, and yet still so much shame remains. But right now, family, Jesus' holiness and blamelessness and perfect reputation are ours because he has been pleased to give it to all of us who are in Christ. And there's coming a day when we will be fully cleansed, fully sanctified, and fully righteous. That's the finished work of salvation to come. But Paul is saying we get to live in those new identities today. See, when you look at salvation in the Bible, it's going to talk about it in three different tenses. It's going to say you were saved, you're being saved, and there's coming a day when you will be saved. So think of it like this. Think about being lost at sea, right? You're in a dire situation. You're in the middle of the ocean without a life jacket, without a lifeboat, and you know on your own you cannot survive. Eventually, you'll lose strength and you'll drown. And at some point, you've lost all sense of direction. You don't even know which way to swim. And you don't know if swimming is the right move or not. Should you just stay there and wait or should you try to get somewhere safe? You're already exhausted. And from the bobbing up and down, you've already ingested way too much water. You're getting tired. You're waning. And in that place, all hope is lost. But then in the distance, you see a rescue boat. But at first, you're unwilling to let your heart go there. Because what if it's an illusion? What if they won't see you? What if they won't hear you? You'd rather just go quietly into the night. But then you see it getting closer. Hope starts to build. And you wonder, can they see me? Can they hear me? And then the boat in sight, hope floods in. You get this wave of energy that you didn't think you had left. And then you hear the bullhorn say, we see you. Hold on, we're coming. Now think what's happening there, right? You begin to swim like Michael Phelps towards that boat, right? They throw the life preserver out and you hold on as they do the work to pull you in. And then they pull you up and you're out of the water. And you say what? I've been saved. And truly you have been saved. But think about it like this. The work of salvation isn't over yet. 
right? You're still dehydrated. You're still exhausted. You need water. You need medical attention. You're also hoping this boat doesn't sink, right? You want to get to dry land. Land has never looked so good to you. See, getting off that boat is what the Bible calls justification. You've been saved. It's God's initial work of salvation to get you out of the water. Sanctification is God's work in bringing about our health and our transformation. So right now in that boat, they're giving you water. They're giving you food. There's some medics there who are attending to your needs. And your situation is drastically improving, not just because you're out of the water, but because you're receiving the medical attention that you need. You're getting water and something to eat. You have a place to rest. Your arms aren't tired anymore. Your legs aren't kicking. You get a place to rest. Then the boat docks and you get on dry land and you're taken to the hospital for further treatment. And when you finally walk out of that hospital fully restored, that's when you're totally and completely saved. Do you see it? You were saved. You were being saved. But then there's a day coming when you're completely saved. That final stage of salvation is what the Bible calls glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. At every point along this path of salvation, your situation is improving, right? It's getting better. What God starts, he fully intends to finish. That's why Christians can speak about our confidence in Christ that he saved us. And we know because he's pulled us out of the water, he's gonna see it to the end. What God begins, he completes. That's why Christians can say, even right now, that we are holy, that we're blameless, that we're pure, even though there's still work to be done. So what Paul is saying in this passage is, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Remember, you're reconciled. Don't forget where you were. He's pulled you out of the water, and he's doing the work of salvation right now, even when you don't know it. Holy and blameless with a pure reputation because of Christ. God is great. He's created us. He's redeemed us. And now Paul is saying, live like that's who you are. Now let's look at that last verse together. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul says that we're to continue in the faith, remain steadfast, and not shift from our hope. This idea of continuing the faith means to persevere despite any opposition or trial. To remain steadfast means to be loyal to the God who has saved you. It means be unwavering. And not shifting means to be well-founded, grounded, established in the truth. We're not to be persuaded or dissuaded from the hope of the gospel. The point of all that Paul has been saying is this. Jesus Christ is great. He is able to create and sustain the world from its remote beginnings. And despite its brokenness, he will sustain it and redeem it back to life. And think about it. If Christ is able to do all that, he's able to bring creation about, sustain it, and see it redeemed, isn't that Christ able to receive you, restore you, renew you in 
the gospel from conversion to glory. See, Paul isn't telling the Colossians, you must be firm, uh, you must be the firm foundation of your faith. He's not saying just muster up the courage to figure things out and stay there. Far from it. Paul is saying, God is great. He's the one in control. So we don't have to be in control. If he's the sovereign great one who's in control, that frees us up to let God be God. And it means we don't have to look anywhere else for our salvation and security. So here's what often happens when we lose sight of God's greatness. It'll manifest itself in one of two ways. Listen and, 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 and try to do some soul work right now and hear where you land on one of these. Some of us will look around and think that God has lost control or that he's doing a poor job. In fact, I was sharing the gospel with a woman this week at the coffee shop and she said, you know what? I think he's doing a bad job. So I said, well, do you want the job? We seek to maintain control. And when this happens, we become overbearing, inflexible, and impatient. That's me. That's how I do. When I don't believe that God is in control or I think he's doing a bad job, I'm overbearing, I'm inflexible, and I'm impatient. We want things to go our way because we think we know what's best. But the reality is we're not in control, really, of much of anything when it comes down to it. And when we try to carry that kind of weight of being in control, we become unstable and movable. We have no firm foundation anymore. We have no anchor because we're trying to anchor ourselves. And then life tosses us and throws us like every wave or current. That's some of us. There's another group. When they think God has lost control, it paralyzes them to the point where they avoid risk and they avoid responsibility in the absence of someone controlling and ordering life, they feel like there's nothing to do except stay right where you are and get into the fetal position. And when that happens, we try to self-preserve and self-protect. And it keeps us from living out the life that God has intended for us to live. See, without that anchor, we live in fear. At the root of our over-control or feeling out of control, is a disbelief or an unbelief in the greatness of God. Do you see how that works? When we don't rightly acknowledge that he's great, he's sovereign, and he's in control, we lose sight of reality. We forget that he's created everything we see. We see that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We forget that he has secured our redemption, and he has reconciled us to himself. We forget that he is great, and he is in control, and so I don't have to look anywhere else for my security and my salvation. I don't have to look anywhere else for stability and assurance. The great news of the gospel is that God has not given you the impossible task of being the anchor of your soul. He's gladly taken that burden for us. So when I see that fruit of impatience and inflexibility, when I find myself becoming overbearing, or when I find myself paralyzed in fear because it feels like everything is out of control and all I want to do is self-protect and self-preserve, I need to trace that unhealthy fruit all the way down to the root of my unbelief. I need to repent of believing the lie that I'm in control. 
I need to repent of the lie that I could be doing a better job of being God than God. I need to repent of the lie that God is not in control. And when I repent of that lie, guess what happens? God meets you there with forgiveness and love and the gentle reminder that he is great and he is in control. And it's there that we learn to trust him. His greatness means that often I will not understand all that he's doing, right? We talk about this all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God. There's going to be times when I just don't have a clue as to what he's doing. His greatness means I won't always see all that he has for me. But his greatness means I can trust him, even when I can't see all that he's doing. And his greatness is not some superficial power. He is powerful, yes, But as much as he's infinitely powerful, he is intimately loving. And to prove it, he died for us. So I can rest in the security and salvation that he has already purchased for me. And it's in that place I can start to speak the truth of the gospel to myself. It's in that place I can surround myself with other brothers and sisters in the faith who can sometimes speak that truth to me when I can't speak it for myself. And when I believe that that eternal truth that God is great, that he's created me, that he is sustaining me, that he has redeemed me, then I can trust and believe that everything is for my good. I can rest in the fact that I'm not in control. And in Christ, I have everything I need. Seven Mile Road, let's be a people who believe that eternal truth together. Let's pray.